right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. So many questions occur. Do they believe in a supreme being? What's their intelligence level? What's their average lifespan? It's approximately 350 to 400 Earth years. It's my understanding that the aliens have an IQ of over 200. They have a religion, but it's a universal religion. They believe in the universe as a supreme being. The aliens enjoy music all types of music, especially ancient Tibetan style music. We ask about their diet. They do eat vegetables. They like vegetables. And their favorite dish or snack is ice cream, especially strawberry. On October 14th, 1988, Mike Farrell, best known as Match's BJ Honeycutt, hosted a very strange television show called UFO Cover-Up Live. The show purported to be a revelatory look into what the U.S. government and the Soviet Union, among others, knew about UFOs. It took the form of a series of apparently rehearsed sit-down interviews between Farrell and various UFO investigators, including Bill Moore, and a couple of supposed government insiders who were hidden in shadows and spoke with distorted voices. It was the culmination of a years-long effort by the government to introduce new narratives into the UFO community. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 11, The Rumor Equation. In the late 1970s and 1980s, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations employed Richard Doty to spread disinformation within the UFO community. The result was not only to cause confusion at the time, but also to create new aspects and strains in the developing UFO folklore. One of the striking features of the misinformation was just how outlandish the stories were. In the last episode, We heard about Paul Benowitz being fed information that led him to believe that hostile aliens were based around and under Archuleta Mesa, and that they posed a threat to humanity. During this episode, 
we'll learn about another bold misinformation campaign. And it raises the question, why was the government trying to convince people of such outrageous stories? Wouldn't it be better to spin something a little more restrained? Utah State folklore professor Lynn McNeil. There's actually a really cool old, old study that was done by some psychologists uh, looking at rumor and how rumor works. And folklorists know that rumor and legend are really similar. And they came up with what they called the rumor equation. And no, this is not deeply scientific, but it's pretty revealing when we think about it. What they said was that the reach of any rumor, the power of a rumor, the spread of it, is equal to the topic's importance multiplied by its ambiguity. If we have a topic to us that's incredibly important, but we have all the info, eh, we're going to talk about it. There's going to be news stories about it, but we're kind of going to rest easy. We're going to be like, okay, really important. Thank goodness we know everything. If we have a topic that's incredibly ambiguous, but we don't really care, then we're sort of like, whatever, I don't need to know. It doesn't matter to me. The minute you start that multiplying exponential growth of something that is both unbelievably important. So of course we can use this as a barometer for our culture, right? What has always been important to us? Our military security, the lives and safety of our children, our personal health, anti-violence, anti-crime, things like that. Plus or multiplied by this question of ambiguity. I don't have the answers. I don't know the answers. It's possible someone is trying to keep the answers from me. You put those things together and you are just asking for a wildfire spread of rumor, of legend, of conspiracy theory. So in fact, a story with outsized implications would be more effective than a more restrained one that on its face might seem more plausible. And that's important to keep in mind as we look at the effort by Richard Doty and others to feed information into the world of UFO believers through, in particular, a man named Bill Moore. You may remember Bill Moore from the last couple of episodes. He was one of the researchers for and authors of The Roswell Incident, which brought the Roswell crash story back to the public after years of being ignored. He was also the person that Doty used to pass a memo to Paul Benowitz that contained allusions to Project Aquarius and MJ-12, which we will hear more about in this episode. But his relationship with Doty predates the Benowitz affair. Here is Richard Doty. Well, Bill Moore came to my attention in something that was entirely different than a UFO matter. Bill wasn't providing any secret or classified information. He had a contact with a person inside the Soviet Union who worked for the Russian Academy of Science, and the government was interested in that particular scientist for a number of different reasons. So the idea was to make a contact through Bill to try to get this uh, scientist as a cooperating person for the United States government. And it actually worked out well for the government. During this time, according to Doty, Moore was also telling him information about two civilian UFO research organizations, APRO and MUFON. And this information was apparently of some interest to the government. But then in the meantime, Bill wrote the book about Roswell with Berlitz. The book contained about 60% of what Bill had gathered. There's a large portion 
of his research that was never published. Well, we were interested in what he didn't publish. And Bill was open to us, and he provided that information to us. And a lot of that information pertained to secretive things that Bill had learned during his time researching it. So here things get a little tricky, because the account we have of how Moore got involved in the business of passing what he believed to be secret government information back to the UFO community doesn't quite square with what we just heard from Doty. Author Greg Bishop is a friend of Moore's. He wrote the book Project Beta about Doty's operations involving Benowitz and Moore. Here, he talks about how Moore came to be recruited into this effort. He got involved because he wrote the Roswell incident. Him and Charles Berlitz actually did most of the research and uh, Charles Berlitz, the Bermuda Triangle guy, did most of the um, writing. Anyway, so Moore was doing interviews about the book. He was on a book tour and somebody called him at one of the radio stations and said, you're the only person that seems to know what they're talking about. We'd like to meet with you. And this, this is the second time it happened. The first time he said, I can't meet with anybody. I'm going to my next book tour stop. And this time he was in Albuquerque. He said he did have a day. So he met this person uh, who turned out to be Falcon, as he's known in the book. Um, that was a name that Moore and his partner gave to these people. Moore and his partner, a man named Jamie Chanderay, gave code names based on birds to the different people from the government that they dealt with. This will become a little complicated later, when more than one person will be known as Falcon. But at this point, the guy named Falcon is not Richard Doty. We don't, in fact, know for sure who it was. They just called it the aviary and gave all the people they had contacts with bird names so that they could talk about them on the phone and people wouldn't know who they were talking about if they were listening in on the phone. Here's Bill Moore on the show UFO Cover Up Live, talking about his recruitment. I got a phone call after appearing on a radio show from a man who said, you're the only person we've heard talk about this subject who seems to know what he's talking about. He convinced me that he was a government intelligence agent and wanted to begin disseminating some information about UFOs to the public. The man Bill is referring to is Falcon, whom we've seen in shadow to protect his identity. That's right. I didn't think that I could handle it all alone. The volume of material I was getting from Falcon was rather mind-boggling, so I got together with Jamie. Jamie is fellow UFO researcher Jamie Chanderay. This government intelligence agent offered more an arrangement. Other UFO researchers were interested in things around military bases. So what they told Moore was, if you can keep a tab on what people are talking about and what information is going through the UFO community so we know who knows what, then we will give you information. Basically, what everybody says is disclosure now. They said they'd give him official government documents on UFOs. So he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. It's not entirely clear who first met with Moore, but Richard Doty became his handler. Moore was valuable because he was a respected UFO investigator who had worked with the two main civilian UFO groups, APRO and MUFON. Bill had both feet right in, in with these groups. He was trusted, and so Bill agreed to provide us information that the UFO groups were gathering. And... I would say most of the information that was uh, provided to us was mundane stuff that we weren't really interested in, but 
there was some information that was being gathered by the MUFON groups, a MUFON or APRO group, that was of interest to the government. And it pertained to sightings, people who reported sightings, sightings that were never publicized. Uh, people who re would report a sighting or a close encounter that occurred at a certain place. And uh, we were interested in those cases because of connections with research, uh, whether it was maybe one of our crafts, highly classified craft that was being seen at certain locations, or just keeping track of what the ETs were doing. This is an interesting comment from Doty. The first part seems reasonable, that the government was trying to determine whether UFO researchers were observing secret military projects. And then, at the end, he suggests that they were also trying to keep tabs on what aliens were up to. At the risk of stating the obvious, the two reasons for government interests given here range wildly in terms of plausibility. And this is where, again, I'll remind everyone that Richard Doty is a former professional counterintelligence agent. He spread misinformation for a living, and I feel pretty sure he did during our conversations. I don't think it makes sense to put much stock in anything he says, but what he says is interesting, even if it's not literally true. George Mason University professor Deborah Latanzi Shudica. Even if a story, even if you're completely convinced that someone is lying to you when someone tells you a story, I think that it's the important thing to consider is, is, you know, like, why are they telling this particular story? What does this communicate about them, their community, um, their belief system, etc.? Our job is to analyze, like, their ability as a storyteller. You know, are they a good storyteller? Are they engaging? You know, are they able to hold their audience? Folklorists are here to judge the quality, context, and content of a story. We're more interested in the event itself as an event and what it communicates about the people and their community. When you're part of a community, you're going to have a developed repertoire of stories that are part of that communal folklore, right? It's like almost like when Christians have conversion experiences. All those stories kind of have similar elements that have been refined by the experience of being in the community. So what's interesting to think about as we listen to Richard Doty is this. We know that he was spreading stories to make UFO researchers believe that they were on the trail of actual aliens rather than secret defense projects. Why tell the particular stories that he did? What does that tell us about the beliefs of the UFO community and what they were willing to accept into the developing UFO folklore. With that in mind, here's Richard Doty again. The government knew, at least at the briefing that I was given in 1978, that Earth has been visited. I mean, we had two crafts. We had alien bodies. We had one alien that was alive, telling us different things, briefing us about his society, his planet. So we knew the government knew that Earth has been, had been visited. Now, since 78, I had received knowledge of, of other ET races that had been visiting Earth. That didn't come until later. So it wasn't a surprise 
to the government, the military and intelligence community because we knew it. That information just never uh, got out to the public, I mean, officially. The reason is that a lot of the information that was coming through the UFO community pertained to classified projects that we were working on. Some might have been reverse engineering of an alien craft, or some might be our own craft that we developed. Doty says he wasn't briefed on the technological origins of these projects. He also says he witnessed some strange things. I saw some things fly at Area 51s that were probably not from this Earth. But that wasn't the information that they wanted to get back from Moore. But what Bill was reporting to us were mostly incidents involving our crafts. Highly classified crafts, such as the F-117, the Aurora, some highly classified drones that we had back then. And people were seeing these things and reporting them as UFOs, which, in fact, they were. Host of the Skeptoid podcast, Brian Dunning. Back in the days of the Cold War, the U.S. was developing things like the U-2, the SR-71, and then the, most significantly, the F-117A stealth fighter. And the Air Force had very legitimate security concerns about not letting the Soviets find out about these programs. And yet, on the mountaintops around every Air Force base in the U.S. were these groups of UFO researchers with their telescopes trained at the base who believed for whatever reason that the UFO is hiding aliens or, or, or whatever it was. Here's these UFO researchers watching the Air Force. The Air Force had, I believe, a legitimate concern that these UFO researchers might get a real photo of an F-117, which then might, by being published wherever, fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. And what we had to do was we had to convince, through Bill, that what they were seeing was, hey, UFOs, and not some highly classified government craft. You might call that disinformation, we call it counterintelligence, and that's part of it, what Bill was doing. They were giving information about the government's dealings with alien races in exchange for information about the movements of these UFO groups and whether there might be any Soviet agents infiltrating them. Because realistically, it does make sense that Soviet agents would infiltrate UFO groups if they were doing things like getting on mountaintops and actually getting footage of F-117 stealth fighters, right? But that, that actually makes sense. was very, very, very easy. Got to remember, every member or most members of the UFO community were, if you wanted to try to convince them of something, you did, just had to plant an idea to, with them because they were already believers. It wasn't very difficult to do that. And that was a type of information that we wanted the UFO group to spread within to keep away from the fact that that craft was really a highly classified U.S. government craft. And it's a, it's a form of counterintelligence. I mean, it wasn't difficult to do. I mean, we didn't have to go through any elaborate means to do it. We had just had to tell somebody that was a UFO and they would believe it. In addition to the exchange of information and disinformation, a second strange effort was undertaken that created a narrative of incredible scope. 
an effort that would bring Moore and Chandray deeper into the government's campaign against the UFO community after the break. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Remember, in the last episode, Bill Moore passed Paul Benowitz a doctored memo that included references to Project Aquarius and a group called MJ-12. That was the first known mention of these two elements of what would become a much larger narrative. The second part came with the delivery of a package to Jamie Chanderay, Greg Bishop. He was sent this package with the Eisenhower briefing document in it, which everybody knows about now. Brian Dunning. The background on that is the MJ-12, Majestic 12, is the, the full name. It's a document, it's about three pages long. What it purports to be is a letter, it's a memo written by the director of the CIA in 1952 and addressed to President Eisenhower. And what it's doing is advising him of the existence of this group called Majestic 12, which is 12 scientists and military officials who were assembled in 1947 after the Roswell landing crash. From the TV special UFO Cover-Up Live, this is the man codenamed Falcon. He is presenting this information about MJ-12 as facts that he knows as an intelligence operative. MJ-12 was a group of people within the, the government. MJ-12 was created by President Truman in the early 50s. And their job was to investigate, keep track of information pertaining to UFOs. Part of their job was scientific advancements. But uh, their primary purpose was to keep track of the information coming in on UFOs and to analyze the information, both uh, scientifically and in a way that would advance our technology. There are government officials and elected officials that are automatically briefed 
the existence of the MJ-12 activities. These officials include the president, the vice president, as elected officials, the director of central intelligence, and the director of the national security agency. The MJ-12 policy is headquartered at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. The United States Navy has the primary operational responsibilities of field activities relating to the MJ-12 policies. All information gathered in the field, not necessarily by Navy personnel, is transmitted to the Navy for analysis. Other known government agencies feed information to MJ-12 through a top-secret cover project known to us as Project Aquarius. That was Bill Moore on the same program. Chandray wasn't the only person to receive those documents. Moore and at least one other researcher did as well. But Chandray was the first to publicize them. That original memo that came out that was sent out both to Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray and Timothy Good in Britain. In fact, they were forced to release it because they said, you, if you sit on this any longer, Tim Good is going to release it and you won't get any credit. So I think at the National UFO Conference in Burbank here in LA, around LA in the early 80s, they introduced the MJ-12 documents and said they didn't know if they were real or not, but thought that probably they were. So somebody was sending this to UFO authors, not to scientists, not to reporters, not to anyone with any kind of mainstream credibility, but to UFO authors. They were hoping that someone would publish this in the UFO literature. So once it appeared with Jamie Chandra, Jamie Chandra developed the film, looked at the pages, shared it with some of his other UFO buddies, and it kind of entered the pop culture at that point. So if we can accept that that is the correct history of what happened, and in my opinion, based on the research that I've done, I do accept that that's the correct history of where it happened. It did show up at multiple people's doorstep with no known origin. Nobody knows who sent it. So who wrote it? Who was trying to get information out to UFO authors? Well, if this was some real information, they're the last people in the world you would have sent it to, right? You would have sent it to someone with a little bit more credibility. You'd have given it to the New York Times. I think the default assumption is that it's a forgery. Reasonably, obviously. The question is, who forged it? As the years went on, at this point, Moore is not pretty much convinced. He is convinced that it was totally hoaxed. But at the time, Moore, Chandray, and others had not reached that conclusion. They researched the original documents in great detail and discovered others, generally with the help of cryptic clues pointing them in the direction of documents that seemed likely to have been planted. Jamie Chandray and Bill Moore. And then there were follow-up postcards, Ethiopian picture postcards mailed from New Zealand with puzzles and riddles. Right, the puzzles were clues. For example, for a stylish look, shop Suitland. This led us to the National Repository in Suitland, Maryland, where we discovered the existence of top-secret documents and filed a Freedom of Information request, which led us further to the Cutler Twining document. Legendary UFO researcher Stanton Friedman had worked with Bill Moore on the investigation into the Roswell crash 
and he again worked with Moore on trying to verify the legitimacy of the MJ-12 documents. Here he is, talking about this treasure hunt in the government files. You'll notice a slight difference in where these files were actually found. My colleagues got some postcards, crazy postcards, talking about going to Washington. They'd gotten a postcard that said from box 176, something like that, uh, a place in New Zealand, crazy place. Moore and Chandra went to Washington, D.C. to see what they could find. But when they got there, I had been told that they were declassifying the Air Force headquarters files. They went to those and they found this document between pages folded up as if it had been in somebody's pocket. And it was in box 176, which is quite unexpected. Anyway, it's just a brief note, but it says NSC, National Security Council, MJ-12 Special Studies Project. And the name on it is Robert Cutler. He was Ike's special assistant to the president for national security. And he's just telling General Twining that a meeting will take place during an already scheduled meeting instead of after it as originally instructed to him. This is the Cutler-Twining document that Moore mentioned earlier. It is generally considered to be another forgery. Moore eventually wrote a book called The MJ-12 Documents. It's about 100 pages long. It's just an analysis of all the documents that he got that he could talk about or thought that were promising, and then a grade as to whether he thought they were, him and his partner thought they were real or not. And half or more of them, they said, you know, probably not real or not, not enough information to tell. But at this point, he says, uh, no, I don't think there's anything real to it at all except the actual people in it, because those people, of course, did exist. And the Majestic 12 people were supposedly in contact with the aliens and knew all about them and everything. And so once this document came out, which didn't happen until 1984, then it's sort of become a foundational document for many of the, in the UFO community who believe that this serves as absolute proof that the government not only knows about uh, alien contacts, but maintains active diplomatic relations with them. So that's, that's the story of MJ-12, and it's still with us. And people still believe that that's a, a, a real group that has some kind of purview over UFO information. And as far as I'm concerned, it's just some group that somebody in the government somewhere decided that they want UFO researchers to think had something to do with the subject. I'm concerned if that's not true. It's just a red herring. An outcome of the MJ-12 Documents Initiative was 1988's UFO cover-up live, which we've heard from in this episode. Among other things, the show covered MJ-12, talked to Soviet scientists, and featured two alleged government insiders who were filmed in shadow and had their voices altered. On this bizarre program, they advanced UFO and alien storylines to a television audience. This excerpt starts with host Mike Farrell asking the man known as Falcon about extraterrestrials. We asked Falcon where he found out so much about extraterrestrial biological entities or EBEs. This book, or it's called the Bible, within the 
MG-12 community contains historically everything that occurred from the Truman era up through the three aliens being guests of the United States government. Technological data gathered from the aliens, medical history gathered from dead aliens that were found in the desert, autopsy information gathered from dead aliens found in the desert and information obtained from the extraterrestrials regarding their social structure and their information pertaining to the universe. Was there an additional source of information? Presently, as of the year 1988, there is one extraterrestrial being. He's a guest of the United States government, and he's remained hidden from public view. The Yellow Book is a book that was exclusively written by the second alien. The book relates to the alien's planet, solar system, suns, the culture, and society makeup on the planet, the social structure of the aliens, and the alien's life among Earthlings. Now Condor tells us about a deal our government made with the aliens. Uh, from what he understands, an agreement signed between our, our U.S. government and the extraterrestrials Essentially, the agreement uh, says that uh, we won't disclose your existence if uh, you do not interfere in our society, and uh, we allow you to operate from a designated uh, base here in the United States. It's in the state of Nevada in an area called Area 51 or Greenland. Think back to last episode and Paul Benowitz's Project Beta report that includes his warnings about the dangers of signing a treaty with the aliens. To people in the UFO community familiar with that storyline, this exchange both supports and expands on it. Anyway, the man in the shadows during this show who is identified as Falcon is thought by many people to be Richard Doty. He's even listed as such on the IMDB website. Doty, however, disputes this. Number one, I wasn't, that wasn't me. I wasn't on that program, no. But I had some meetings with the producers of that program, and they wanted me to come on in uniform. They wanted me to come on in disguise. They wanted me, I refused to. But I was busy. I was someplace entirely different at that time period. But people claimed it was me. He does think, though, that people within the government were involved that they saw this as a way to potentially get information to the public. I think the producer wanted, and I think maybe somebody within the government wanted disclosure, some sort of a disclosure, and that's why they were helpful in this program, UFO Alive. Moore's involvement with the government's efforts to spread disinformation in the UFO community ended in spectacular fashion at a high-profile UFO conference in 1989. Greg Bishop was a friend of Moore's at this point and attended the conference. I'd only known him a couple years up to that point, but he said, you know, you're going to the MUFON conference. I said, yeah, I guess I can. And I didn't even have enough money to fly there. I had to take a bus from LA to Las Vegas and stay at the cheapest hotel I could find. And 
then I would just, you know, I would walk or I don't know, take a cab or something over to the hotel where they're having the convention. Anyway, I wanted to go because he said, I'm going to knock everybody's socks off, he said. And I said, with what? I don't want to tell you. He wouldn't tell me. He didn't tell anybody, I don't think. He called me and told me that he was going to make this speech. I was there. He toned it down, believe it or not, of what his original idea was. I told him, you got to be careful what you say, Bill. So he toned it down somewhat. But it was an earth-shaking speech within the UFO community that he had been working for the government for years. He was uh, like the featured speaker on Saturday night, which is basically, you know, the, the one that everybody wants to see, the last speaker on Saturday night. There was no place to sit when I got there. It was like standing room only in there. It was, I don't know, probably a thousand people. Big room, really big room. Bill Moore got up to speaking and started describing what happened with Benowitz, why he was doing what he was doing. His speech, which had originally been billed as addressing revelations from his MJ-12 investigations, instead was a nearly 90-minute account of his arrangement with the government, his work with Doty, and what this all meant for the UFO community. This is an excerpt from that speech, in which he publicly talks about his work with the government to give disinformation to Paul Benowitz. It's read by an actor. As I've already stated, I was personally aware of the intelligence community's concerted efforts to systematically confuse, discourage, and discredit Paul by providing him with a large body of disinformation on the subject of UFOs, the malevolent aliens who allegedly pilot them, the technology they employ, and the underground bases they supposedly possess and occupy. The entire story of a secret treaty between the U.S. government and the aliens, of exchange of technology between us and the aliens, of battles between aliens and American armed forces, and of aliens allegedly having implanted hundreds of thousands, even millions of human beings for the purpose of taking over the world and using us as cattle or slaves, came about as a result of this process. I know because I was in a position to observe much of this process as it unfolded, and I was providing regular reports on its effectiveness to some of the very people who were doing it to Paul. And I can tell you that it was effective, because I watched Paul become systematically more paranoid and more emotionally unstable as he tried to assimilate what was happening to him. He had to stop probably five, six, eight times so people would calm down and stop yelling at him. And I kind of just stood there watching the whole thing going, my God, I didn't know people were so passionate about this. I had just gotten back into the subject after not really being into it since I was a teenager. And here I am in my early 20s, very early 20s, standing there watching the circus and watching people getting so upset that, wow, um, this, this is amazing. For the question and answer, he, he provided his own questions and answers. He didn't actually take questions from the audience because he realized it would just been chaos. Um, it was anyway. When he was done, he ran out the back door, uh, the door next to the stage. He didn't like stay around to ask questions, to answer any question, because he knew it would just been he would have been mobbed and, and maybe uh, I don't know, maybe worse. It was ju- just that revelation of that he had been working with the government, because according to them, was the enemy, the enemy of UFO researchers, the government and its cover-ups, and, and the fact that he had cooperated with them just it drove them nuts. And I, I think that, well, th- that did him, uh, it took him away from any credibility within the UFO community. He stayed within. He did a lot of things on his own uh, for a number of years, publishing 
what he thought was the truth. Um, but it was a, uh, a gut-wrenching speech for a lot of people within the UFO community. To people in the UFO community, Moore's speech not only revealed that he had worked with the government to undermine the work of investigators, it also let them know that the stories that they believed described the reality of the UFO situation were, in fact, a fiction created by the government and funneled through more to them. The process they had been a part of was not government disclosure, but instead folklore creation. In the end, the campaign by the government through the Air Force Office of Special Investigations against the UFO community can best be seen as a small part of a much larger counterintelligence effort against our national rivals during the Cold War. People don't realize that that was part of a huge operation having to do with trying to find out who from Russia, China, anybody else was, was watching our military projects, who was watching, how they were getting the information they were getting. They're trying to actually just map all these networks of spies and espionage people just trying to find out. You know, one of the avenues they used was talking to UFO researchers. I'm a UFO researcher from Russia. Can you tell me what, what you're working on? And it could be something around a military base. So anyway, they're, th that's what they were worried about. They didn't care about UFOs. What they cared about in this operation was who knows what and how is that information getting out? And in some cases, they wanted to map these uh, networks because they wanted to start throwing crap in the, in the water, just start throwing junk out there, disinformation to Russians and Chinese and whoever else was looking at our stuff. Because they could, they, it's like, okay, this person talks to this person, this person, talks to, this is a direct, direct line into, you know, the KGB. And so if we tell them something and it has some plausibility to it, it'll get to the KGB or the Kremlin and they'll be acting on, on wrong information and it will mis mislead and misdirect them. There was a, um, we call it an annex a part of a, a major operation or a war plan or something that was developed in Washington in the Pentagon, way above my pay grade. And I wasn't the only one doing this. There were 122 other agents in the United States that were working on the same thing I was doing. So it wasn't just me, but it was following a plan. We were following a plan. And uh, when these matters popped up, we would report it up the chain and the chain uh, command messages would come down to us telling us to go ahead and act to, to follow this particular procedure and uh, we and we did that so it wasn't a single isolated incident or plan this was happening all over the United States and probably the other foreign countries too Bill Moore told Greg Bishop about how he saw his role in this vaster effort which involves William Casey the CIA director at the time and Falcon, the one who recruited him, not the one from the television show. What Bill told me, he said, imagine that it's a big play and Richard Doty is one of the bit players and I'm one of the bit players and Benowitz is a bit player in one scene, in one part of the play or the movie or whatever it is. And there's a whole other play or movie going on that has little, very little to do with what we're doing, but we're just tangentially connected with it. A giant show being run. He said, you know, and, and Falcon was like like the director of the play. But the producer was, he said, was uh, most likely William Casey. So he said, if you look at it in that way, William Casey's a producer, Falcon is a director, and 
Rick Doty and I and Benowitz are all just little bit players in one little scene in this giant thing. To this point in this season of Strange Arrivals, we've looked at how folklore was created through the Rendlesham Forest incident, how Alan Hynek in the Project Blue Book investigations created a narrative of government cover-up, and now how the government itself fed storylines into the UFO community to ostensibly muddy the waters around military experimental aircraft. But there is another force that has shaped our understanding of UFOs, and like the government's disinformation operation, it both borrows from existing UFO folklore and creates new narratives. This force is popular culture. Okay, great. Um, all right, well, why don't we just start off, uh, could you introduce yourself? Uh, Chris Carter, uh, best known as creator of The X-Files. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. And special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at GrimAndMild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.